Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are again. Hey, Andrew, good to be with you, Sparrow. And uh, here we are for another transmission of baffling combustion so so we did this podcast kind of a um, warm-up game last week on time you know which was in part instigated by this understanding that we're now syndicated on the pacifica radio network and so i was thought maybe we'd be introducing some real temporal discipline but i now realize you know to hell with it you know we should just do what we do and yeah we were talking about time, and, and we decided that, that it was kind of a bummer, and I didn't even listen to it. I just figured it was just too sort of amorphous, but we landed on Gertrude Stein's composition as explanation as a area that we thought would could actually uh, blow on that and cook up a little heat, if not fire, and uh, set some stuff aflame. This essay, and we wanted to focus a little bit on time, to use that as kind of a penetrating uh, instrument. Mental scalpel, <laughs> I don't yeah. Well, Gertrude Stein would approve of that metaphor. Oh, nice. So the, oh, the, the essay scalpel. was... Yes. Yeah, Even though the, she never became a doctor. Or a psychologist, she, I guess. She, was her. she what? A different sort of doctor. Ah, yeah, good point. Doctor she was grammar. Yeah, she was a scientist. She was a experimenter. Yeah, definitely. She applied certain ideas that she had and then executed and sought to um, disprove them. And the, also, uh, uh, in, in the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, she talks a lot about uh, working as a medic in World War One. It seemed like that was really essential to her. So she did become a kind of doctor. Well, she was in the American Ambulance Corps. So uh, this essay, Composition as Explanation, was delivered as a lecture, uh, I believe at the invitation or at the arrangement of Dame Edith Sitwell uh, at the Cambridge Literary Club and at Oxford University. It's almost like England only has like two colleges, Cambridge and (laughs) Oxford, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds pretentious and stupid. Anyway. But (laughs) But it is weird that she gave the same lecture at Oxford and Cambridge. Like, she had to cover both bases, you know. Right. And And it was delivered in the winter of 25 and 26. And then Virginia Woolf and her husband Leonard uh, published it in Hogarth Press in that following year. And so we all have read this essay and you know we can talk about it in terms of time or anything else that um impinges on our time i thought one thing i'll have to tell you that i sent you guys this printout that i pulled from the poetry foundation website and i did have this one kind of interesting thing that i noted i don't know this is what it says in there Stein's own experimental work, driven in part by her engagement with Cubist painting, Mm. pairs language from time and narrative and explores the spatial arrangement of words and sentences and the continuity or disruption that their combinations show. 
as well as the sonic patterns created by speech. This kind of, I thought that was a somewhat interesting sentence. Um, yeah. It occurred to me that, that speech and text represent a, a dialectic, an experimental dialectic, where there's this tension between speech and text hmm. that in many ways is the history of Lenerincha over the past, you know, roughly seven to eight hundred years can kind of be traced on this text-speech line or ridge, that, that there's always this, con- this process of taking down text, and that speech is this kind of avant-garde hmm. force, it, you know, that's constantly correcting literature, forcing literature onward. Hmm. Right, um, like, uh, you mean like uh, Chaucer? wrote in Middle English, and a lot of great works were, like the uh, Dante is the first person to write in uh, actually colloquial Italian, in any format, I think, of Italian. Right. So, so there's, you know, literature was in the West was in Latin up until, what would that be, the uh, 14th century, I think. Yeah, so, I would say the centrifugal kind of force of it is comes out of Chaucer. Those are speeches, you know, he writes in the form of, of direct speech. And, you know, it can be carried up through, for example, you know, conventionally speaking, William Carlos Williams, Walt uh, Whitman to a certain extent, but, you know, Williams, um, etc., um, and even up to David Anton. No, I don't know. Um, you know, his talk poems. Um, yeah, it's just a sort of whatever. Well, and certainly the beats, you know, are an example of a kind of uh, Kerouac. So you feel like he's kind of talking his books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Neil Cassidy, he, he speaks of the intelligence of the human voice, you know, which I'm personally very interested in as well. And I think mm-hmm. underscores in some way, you know, that we're doing this podcast. Oh, that's a good point. Didn't think of yeah. that. And Shakespeare also, you know, uh, really there's a feeling of of actual speech to me in Mm. his uh, plays. Yeah, whereas his sonnets, which, you know, from his perspective, his literary place, he felt, was secured through the sonnets, not through the plays. That's the rap, you know, but I'm I'm not a Shakespearean scholar, but the sonnets are hard, kind of somewhat turgid and sort of dopey. In <laughs> I think Alice Notley said uh, they're good. The sonnet, Shakespeare sonnets are good till you get to the ending. Like the <laughs> endings are no good. Uh-huh. But that's kind of, you know, the New York school kind of thinks that about all endings. All endings yeah. that sound like endings they're against. Right. Like Berrigan would, would say, you know, there isn't, there aren't too many poems that couldn't be improved by just taking out the last line. And maybe we should discuss the last line of uh, of uh, Gertrude Stein's essay. Maybe that's the place to begin. Now yeah. that's all. New paragraph. That's the line. That's the ending. Now that is all. Now. Yeah. Now. Interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Now being the present time, which is what she's obsessed with. Yeah, right. Continuous present. Yeah. And then before that, the paragraph that consists of the phrase and afterwards, period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think understandably the last couple paragraphs where she begins to get into trying to deal with what she construed as the problem, you know, which had to do with 
time sense in the composition, that is what is always a fear and a doubt and a judgment and a conviction. The quality and the creation of expression, the quality in a composition that makes it go dead just after it has been made is very troublesome. The time in the composition is the thing that is very troublesome, which I didn't entirely, the the term grok. Oh, yeah, no, no. It's a sort of hippie um, term, but it's, uh, I I didn't didn't quite understand. Um, Stranger in a Strange Land, wasn't that the book? That's it, good man. It gets very strange there, right in the, the third paragraph from the ending where she starts talking about distribution and equilibration. Yeah, I mean, I sort of sought to deal with those two terms and sort of saw, in other words, distribution has to do with spacing and arrangement or syntax Uh and has to do with kind of a going forth, like distribution, it goes forth. And then the equilibration has to do with balance has to do with resolution uh has to do with the coming back Hmm. um which i equate you know with the term rhyme which i create i i equate time you know in a in a experiential sense with rhyme Hmm. because something comes back and rhymes with the previous line and that's a kind of uh, interval and that interval is time It's a going forth and a and a coming back, going forth and a coming back, you know, similar to, for example, breathing. Yeah. Or to the systole and diastolic operations, the operation of the human heart or a heart, you know. Yeah. And also the tick tock of a clock. Right. Similar. I was writing about a clock the other day and I said you could say in a way that a clock breathes, because, uh, I mean, a a ticking clock, in a sense, sort of breathes. Tick, tock, in-breath, out-breath. Yeah, my uh, most assuredly beloved spouse, and my kids are somewhat obsessed with tick-tock, the program. Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah. recently been slated for extermination or whatever, you know, of... um, yeah, I joined it recently. Contemporary madness. Uh, you know, when it became famous, I decided I wanted to be part of TikTok. So I got in on it, watched yeah. a few. Uh, everything I saw, all the videos they they s- selected for me to look at were either uh, pranks yeah. or uh, Christian missionaries. Mm. Christians oh. telling you, in a kind of charming way, to accept Jesus. Or praying or, for you. Or else. Ha <laughs> ha! Yeah, it's all full of pratfalls and, yeah, pranks and uh, serendipitous recording of video in which something anomalous occurs. And, like, kind of funny. I did it for about 20 minutes. And actually, um, you know, 20 minutes kind of somewhat well spent, you know, in a cheerful frame of mind. But it's, it's funny how time, I, I was doing it, and I didn't realize I was doing it. And then 20 minutes had passed. Yeah. And I uh, and I threw away my device. Yeah, that's where a lot of it's my life fire. goes, down the uh, drain of Twitter. Like mm-hmm. I look up and an hour and a half has passed. Now, in terms of composition, mm-hmm. 
Uh, I'm interpreting this essay, which was originally a lecture. I'm curious about the um, morphology from the lecture to the essay, because I think there may be something significant in the nomenclature, but I don't know anything or much about Gertrude Stein. But I do read this um, this essay as a philosophical statement. Uh huh. Uh huh. My sense is that um, a lot of the uh, keys, so to speak, to Gertrude Stein's work can be found in this text. Mm-hmm. So I jotted down, oh, I should also mention that um, a mutual friend and former colleague of Sam and I, Joan Rotelli, is an expert on Gertrude Stein and has written quite a bit on Gertrude Stein. And I believe, if my memory serves correct, said something along these lines um, in a lecture she gave. The foundational quality of this text. And I jotted down just a few claims that we continue to begin again, that we uh-huh. are continuously coming back to the same things, whether as individuals or as, a cult, as, as, as cultures. There's this, um, what did Nietzsche refer to it as, the, the law of eternal recurrence, back to these, um, these questions, these observations, these quandaries, there's a repeatable quality. That's the first. The second is that we're, we're continuously in the present. We might think and speak in the past or future, but it's only and has been only now. Um, I have four things, five things on this list. The fourth, fourth thing, yesterday's language is inadequate for today. Mm-hmm. To the contemporaneous, there's a necessity to reinvent the language somehow. And that's always going to be misunderstood in the moment. It only makes sense it's only um, intelligible later on. And, and finally, how we compose in words is how we see things. Hmm. It's almost a Buddhist notion, right? That the, that the mind, um, in the language that we use, the narratives that we employ, play no small role in influencing, perhaps even scripting, our external reality. Or hmm. what Gertrude Stein calls what is seen. What is seen. Yeah. And I, I have no, like, central thesis. It's just a, a, a collection of points that I jotted down into the margin of the essay as I was reading this morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hmm. I think all of those are, are tropes or aspects that she comes on. I mean, I, I would also add that, you know, it, it, I think that this may act as a kind of as a kind of key for unlocking a kind of way of view of what of the body of her work. I would also say that in a way it's a kind of primer. You know, the way you have a, a prosody handbook, it's a kind of a, a grammar for writing, uh, for the actual act of writing as a writer, as a scribbler, that this is a way of coming to terms with that which happens naturally is also present, you know, particularly in that sense of beginning again, you know, beginning hmm. um, over and over. Yeah. And, and also this, I, I mean, I, I also marked it up pretty thoroughly and la di da and, you know, have those kinds of notations too. And I guess from my standpoint, I'm wondering if we couldn't just go through and pick up whatever gleanings we had as we go through from, you know, the beginning, middle to the end, or the other way around. I don't know. Oh, you know, also I wanted to say, Andrew, that, you know, uh, my reading of it was 
different than yours that I thought that what Gertrude Stein was saying is this is how I write. These are my methods of writing. Uh, always beginning again, uh, always being in the eternal present. Continuous present. Yeah. Continuous present. Continuous present. But not that this was the philosophical nature of reality. I mean, it could be that that's what she was saying. I'm just saying that's how I read it, is that she was being very personal about this is my technique. She makes a number of claims about artists, writers, that suggest a field of action beyond the self alone. You may be right that perhaps she was deliberately reflecting on her own process and her own perspective and not suggesting that this was reality, capital R. Well, I guess the question is, you know, and this word explanation doesn't come up in the body of the essay. It's in Mm. the title. Um, But what is she explaining? She is fairly forthright in saying, you know, these are the things I've done. Um, and that she's kind of explaining her process. But I think that as many writers that came after her uh, learned a certain attitude from her, which they carried into their own and wrote out of, you know, mm-hmm. like Joan Ritalik, say. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe all of us. So, yeah. So uh, that's fine with me, Sam, if you want to go through. It seems like it more makes more sense to go through it if from the beginning to the end than from the end to the beginning. Yeah. That the backwards method sort of makes me a little delirious. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, it's a complex sort of. She uses very plain speech, very plain words, but it it's complicated in that she piles on a bunch of things that she's operating out of that interrelate, but that it's difficult to get them all to operate at the same time. I mean, I thought the first sentence or part of the first sentence was, was very interesting. (laughs) I mean, you know, there is singularly, so singularly, uh, there is like singularly, like once, like it happens once singularly, nothing. There is singularly nothing that makes a difference a difference, um, which which I thought was inherently interesting, in that a difference a difference is repeating the same word that makes a difference a difference, hmm. but that those are two different differences. Those are the same; they're singular, yeah. but at the same time, those two differences are the difference. Yeah, that's um, interesting. You know, and that's the in part I think you know this fractal nature to her writing. This idea of repeating, but out of repeating, you're not coming back to the same place, but there's a sense of progression. Yeah, she talks about that later. She talks about how it sounds like to me what she's saying is she she had this idea that she was just going to say the same thing over and over again forever. But then it turned out that there were it was always going to be different. She wasn't expecting that, but that sort of surprised her. Anyway, that's. That's how I understood. I'm not sure where that is, but that's why I... It's funny because I read that sentence differently. I read it as if there was a comma after the first difference. There is singularly nothing that makes a difference, a difference in beginning and in the middle and in ending, except that each generation has something different at which they are all looking. 
So I just I just imagined a comma between a difference and a difference, which uh, you know I'm not saying it belongs there or doesn't, but because she more or less never uses commas, you you you're kind of put in the position of being kind of her editor as you read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it can make sense either way. And so already there's sort of this bifurcation, but it does make sense. There is singularly nothing that makes a difference a difference. Nothing makes a difference a difference, you know, in the beginning, in the middle, in the end, except that each generation has something different at which they are all looking, at which we are all looking. Namely, I mean, I think that there's a also the sense that that the writing, that the making, the composition, the state of composing, of putting together, is that an inherent human capacity, tendency, proclivity, but that every particular epoch, she uses the word epoch once, has a different character, has a different shape that is constituted of everybody making their own making in that period. And that you know that it that the that that which is an organic human property as composers is continuous is what mm. is natural to human beings but then there's a different thing that they're composing into and arranging and are making you know by saying back to us that which we are living in. And that the it occurred to me that there's a slight kind of the difference between essence and personality, um, that the essence is closer to our, I don't use this word guardedly, sort of creative urge. You know, I guess that's actually a procreative urge, I think is the <laughs> term Whitman uses that that is our essence. And then the personality is there that it kind of informs and constructs the personality. Mm. But that the personality is there also to guard the essence, is to create a container, is to create Mm. a field of experience in which the essence can be articulated, Mm. say. There's an ancient Greek word, and that word is poesis, Mm. to make things in... With words, hmm. or to make up to um to make. I think it's more essential. The word poet, po- poi, poitas, poien. Three terms. Poetas is the she. <laughs> poien means to make. Poetas, poeta means the maker, and then poien or po- uh, whatever it is is the poem, is the made thing. It's more essential. It doesn't have to do with writing. All forms of art are under the poetic, you know, um, umbrella. So it's it's the activity in which a person brings something into being that did not exist before. Yeah, is making, yeah. To make something that did not exist before, that's the definition of poesis. Hmm. And that every generation is going to have, what multiple poeses but there's going to be some sort of unifying element, right? This first paragraph, Gertrude Stein underscores the, uh, the generational piece, the epoch. I don't know where epoch appears, but generation appears in the first paragraph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's going to change what's seen, right? That, that, yeah, I mean, yeah. what I took her to be, you know, and I think there's a tendency to see her as a mystic, 
that we were discussing last week. But I see her as a materialist, that she's saying the material circumstances of life change. And at some point she says, I think, in the last 30 years, life has changed quite a bit. And therefore, um, people are going to write things that are different. Artists are going to make paintings that are different because they're looking at different things. They're living surrounded by different stuff. Like Joan Rotelic mentioned that our entrance into the Anthropocene, this new geological epoch, requires uh-huh. a different way of speaking, requires a new poesis. Mm-hmm. That the, the, the rate of change has been so dramatic that yesterday's language has to be vacated and replaced with um, a new poetics, broadly speaking. I would I would totally sign on to that. And I would also say that the pandemic, right. which is the real ruler of our time at this moment, further and is connected, I believe, to an anthropocenic view of what is seen. And I, and I would agree with Joan on that without um, hesitation. I mean, one thing she says when she's defining composition she says that the composition, it makes a composition, who describe it and make of it. It confuses, it shows, it is, it looks, it likes it as it is. <laughs> um, she later also comes back to that, and I believe she expands it slightly. It makes a composition, it confuses, it shows, it is, it looks. It mm-hmm. likes it as it is. And this makes what is seen as it is seen. Mm. Is that, you know, there's the art critic, uh, Clem Greenberg, for example. And he said that all artists do is put a frame around what is there and say, in so many words, look at this. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, you know, that's kind of, but I think this idea of the composition is is more than just like, oh, hey, I'm going to make a table. Oh, I'm going to make a sestina. Oh, I'm going to make a portrait. There's a there's a particular quality to composition in that it does these disruptive things, mm-hmm. um, you know, confusing being, you know, the, the its first Um, attribute. And then it's very interesting in that paragraph, she also says, and this is something she picks up later, that is because war is a thing that decides how it is to be when it is to be done. This idea of war is interesting. I feel that she's writing directly out of the experience of the war and out of, I should also say, the Spanish, what they called the Spanish influenza, understanding it came out of Missouri or something, Um, (laughs) you know, where 50 to 100 million people died. Mm. And so there's this sense of the the war. Mm. I mean, I I sort of intuit from that because it's not exactly patent in the language, but that artists are in a slight state of war, that there's kind of an art war. Artists are both deeply imbued, but also standing in contradiction to their generation and to their epoch. 
I did um, quote. She uses uh, a number of times this word outlaw. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I wrote down the line, the creator of the new composition in the arts is an outlaw, which that I surprised me coming from her. I didn't know she had that kind of whatever uh, terminology. I think her is just this rich dame living this kind of easy life. But there is something in her of the uh, Robin Hood. But I, mm-hmm. I agree. I think the World War One is kind of, and, and it's interesting because you think of her as writing, um, you know, these uh, kind of stream of consciousness essays that don't have any direction. And yet from the, the very first sentence, to my mind, makes the point she's trying to make, which is that each generation has something different. Each generation is different than the previous generation. And then the second paragraph makes this point about the effect of World War One, which I think is kind of her key point. And then right before the sentence you quoted is a sentence, Lord Grey remarked that when the generals before the war talked about the war, they talked about it as a 19th century war, although to be fought with 20th century weapons. This is, I think, she's talking about how war is the same as art, that people still think in old fashioned terms. They're still thinking in a 19th century Victorian way about a war. And they're just thinking, well, We'll get all these new weapons and we'll do the same kind of war that we've always done. And then it turned out, no, no, no. War has now qualitatively changed. And in the same way, uh, art has qualitatively changed. And then one of the big points she makes finally is that after World War I, suddenly everybody could look at Picasso and say, this guy's a genius. Art right, because was of the changed war. by the war, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would all this circles back to what Andrew said, you know, coming out of Ritalik. Stein mentions um, the aesthetic movement of romanticism. Mm. Yes. Yeah, that's a tricky that it's, we need to deal with. It's tricky. A moment, but I get the sense that she's critiquing romanticism um, as no longer being possible post World War One. Huh. That's interesting. Because romanticism, in in many respects, participated in the First World War. The elevation of the nation state and this Victorian notion of progress. Is she she critiquing the aesthetic movement as as being dead, even though it was still very much in vogue, I think, in the literary magazines of the early 1920s? Yeah, I think that's tricky um, in terms of what you call nation state and its relationship to the broad romantic movement coming out of the late 1700s, right? Mm. Yeah, I I would really love if we could just bracket that and sort of deal with it as it comes up. Mm. Because I think it's tricky. Because there's one thing that I wanted to also say in this just after that, This first sentence of the paragraph two down from that, there's this line, no one is ahead of his time, Mm -hmm. period. And I'm just like, huh, you know, for us, we are in our time, we're aware of how sexist and sort of like creepy (laughs) and verboten, you know, this, this use of his time is. And then through that whole paragraph, she uses the masculine um, universal term. 
And mm-hmm. for Gertrude Stein, she must have been like aware, you know, his time. Am I a man? No, I'm this, I'm that. And it occurred to me, and this is just a sort of side thing, is the impact of gender on her linguistic sensibility and sensitivity. And that there must have been underriding and in, and in many ways, like very much touching her essence, a desire to shatter those kinds of language constraints, those mm-hmm. language concepts that narrow things to the um, thing that got us into every god, you know, every <laughs> war we've ever been, <laughs> which is the male like uh, psychosis. You know, the patrilineal thing that we keep repeating, you know, and that we're living through another cycle of. Um, I really, really, really thought in my lifetime we'd get over it. And I was so wrong. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't get the feeling that that particular issue of of maleness exactly is what's bothering her. I mean, I think it's more like. She's sort of adopting that tone. She's saying, you know, I can do it just as well as a man can do it. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking also there's something in her tone. I never thought of this before reading her, that there's something a little Victorian about the way she writes. She's, you know, breaking with Victorianism, destroying Victorianism. But like just the sentence, like no one is ahead of his time. It is only the particular variety of creating his time is the one that his contemporaries, who also are creating their own time, refuse to accept. There's kind of the shadow of like Macaulay and Carlyle and all these like great English thinkers of the 19th century with their liberal wisdom. You know, it's like she's sort of parodying it. She's sort of destroying it. She's sort of same simultaneously kind of practicing it. it, it it's very mm-hmm. complex what her relationship to I think to the Western tradition kind of like it is with Picasso for that matter like Picasso was going around looking at uh, kind of cave painting and saying this is it this is the way to get out of Western civilization yeah I think that was Eliot the specific uh, reference to Altamira I think was Eliot yeah at any rate yeah well I read I listened to some book on tape called something like Picasso and the painting that shaped that changed the world and there was some kind of like medieval church in Spain that he goes to where they're painting these like icon type figures in this kind of proto primitive, however you say it, you know, pre Renaissance way. And it's just a naive electrifying effect. Yeah. Uh Kind of a naive. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, this is like, he's trying to find a way out of that kind of academic, art of the 19th century that his own father was trapped in yeah i mean i i agree with what you're saying with that she that that she's not hung up on gender in this particular instance but it would be difficult for me to imagine that she wasn't aware of that you know putting his time um you know in this frame you know and that she was aware of it and that maybe that does lead to some of her 
kind of uh, Macaulay irony or Victorian irony in those follow-on sentences, maybe. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's something new in her prose that nobody's ever done before, which is, you know, lots and lots of repetition, you know, breaking with uh, punctuation, there's pretty much no commas, you know, there's no contractions, there's there's some kind of radical simplification of language. Mm-hmm. Is that feminist or female? You know, I feel like as three white men, how can we say that? I think she's um, embracing or leaning into the masculinity inside of her. <laughs> I'm not just going to look at masculinity here through a lens of suspicion. Mm. You know, I, I, she says in the same paragraph that Sam pointed to, or indicates that the avant-garde artist, although of course she doesn't use that language, but yeah. the contemporary artist um, needs to be competitive. Oh, that, really? where, where is that? If you are non-competitive, if you participate in non-competitive efforts, you're essentially off the bus from that paragraph. But in, as you may say, the non-competitive efforts, where if you are not in it, nothing is lost except nothing at all, except what is not had. There are naturally all the refusals, and the things refused are only important if unexpectedly somebody happens to need them. (laughs) In the case of the arts, it is very definite. Those who are creating the modern composition authentically are naturally only of importance when they are dead. Because by that time, the modern composition, having, be- having become past, is classified, and the description of it is classical. Mm. Yeah, that is very interesting about the non-competitive efforts. Hence, I kind of missed that when I read it the first time. It's the bell- yeah, me too. The war, like, you know, the, the connection with war, the connection mm-hmm. with arts and war, that you have to be a warrior. Mm-hmm. You have to um, wield this um, spirit of competition. Uh, in, in order to, um, I think, revolution. I think it's a it's a good reading of it. Yeah. Well, then she she goes on and sort of underlines that um, where she says there's hardly a moment in between, and it is really too bad. It is really too bad. Very much too bad naturally for the <laughs> creator, but also very much too bad for the enjoyer. They all really would enjoy the created so much better just after it has been made than when it is already a classic, right? Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, uh, you know, our friend Marcel Proust says pretty (laughs) much the same thing. He says that artists owe it to their time to show their work in their time so that they can help their time. Oh, I see. Yeah. She seems to be talking more just about the pleasure of an art lover who gets to see something when it's just been made, which, you know, was her actual experience, of course, particularly with Picasso, but with the whole, you know, whatever's coterie of uh, of artists, visual artists. And it, she seems to be just sort of, it's just too bad for people that they don't get to enjoy, you know, art right while it's being made. And also, uh, she seems to be saying that once it's classic, it's very hard to appreciate it. 
There's kind of a barrier between you and it. Well, she's using the word classic in a specific sense, you know, but certainly maybe not um, rejecting that sense of, I mean, it's it's something that's classified, categorized, that is... Taxonomized. Thank you. (laughs) And and it makes me think about my hatred of classic rock. Like every time I go to the supermarket and I hear the Eagles, it's just like, please stop. You know, I went to the Phoenicia Diner the other day. It's like 90% millennials sitting at these endless picnic benches eating. And why do they have to listen to, uh, you know... Yeah, some goddamn desperado. You know, uh, actually it was the talking heads, but even that, you know, it's just like, why do you have to listen to something you've already heard? You know, something like Stairway to Heaven or something. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's true, at least for me, you can't see through Stairway of Heaven to what was underneath it, you know, to the radical statement that Led Zeppelin was making in 1971. It's lost mm-hmm. under the the veneer uh, classicism. Yeah, I thought this uh, the paragraph that follows this idea of the acceptance of the classic, where there's almost no interval yeah, from that point of something being outside, you know, beyond the fringe, beyond what you know, the Romans, the Martello Towers set up in Ireland, you know, beyond the pale. Um, And then that which is included, what's not only included, but is also, you know, celebrated, if that's the right word, for where I'm going, which is, I think it's interesting in terms of Black Lives Matter, you know, stepping outside (laughs) this essay as being a primer to her work or to, you know, making things. She writes, for a very long time, everyone refuses Everyone is a stretch. And then almost without a pause, almost everybody accepts. In the history of the refused in the arts and literature, the rapidity of the change is always startling. I think that, you know, the momentum out of the choking of George George Floyd is this profound like moment, like this sudden switch and everybody got it. I mean, it may happen. It seemed a lot of people, including me, see the parallels with Emmett Till, who had also a similar effect. It was a similar effect on John Lewis, who just died. He was galvanized by Emmett Till's death. I saw I heard. Did you read John Lewis's uh, posthumous letter that he published in the New York Times? No. Yeah, it's it's um, a very moving letter, but it's all about Emmett Till. And the comparison between George Floyd and Charles—I huh. mean, it's it's a tragedy, really, of American history that we have these moments where suddenly, you know, unlike with Picasso, but maybe it does happen a little bit with artists too—that an artist is accepted, is suddenly recognized as a classic, and then they slip out of classicism. You know, maybe uh, Hemingway in our life is no longer quite the classic he was when I was like uh, 10 years old. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Stein uh, goes on to give us the what she calls the characteristic quality of a classic. Yeah. Which she calls uh, 
it that it that it is beautiful. Yeah. Now, yeah, but you really don't perfectly... expect her to be a person using the word beauty. Yeah. I mean, it's a... that really shocked me. So I think, you know, and this is separate from composition. You have a composition, and the state of the composition is, is one of an outlaw state, of an outlier state, of a sense of conflict and of war and so on and so forth. But that moment at which it switches over to becoming classified, the mode of classification that brings it over or brings it in is its beauty. I think it's interesting in terms of Samuel Johnson, who makes the same (laughs) point. He says that the works that last in literature are those that deal with nature, are those that deal with the primary attributes of what is in part him you know what is human what is natural that which captures our origin that which captures our beginning really you know understanding nature comes from you know the latin natus she puts an interesting twist on that because she suggests that the beauty cannot be seen Oh, really? Where is that? Until later, in the paragraph that Sam just read aloud, of course it is beautiful, but first, all beauty in it is denied, and then all the beauty of it is accepted. If everyone were not so indolent, they would realize that beauty is beauty, even when it is irritating, (laughs) and stimulating not only when it is accepted and classic. Of course, it is extremely difficult, nothing more so, than to remember back to its not being beautiful once it has become beautiful. This makes it so much more difficult to realize its beauty when the work is being refused and prevents everyone from realizing that they were convinced that beauty was denied once the work is accepted. Mm, Well read. With the acceptance of the time sense comes the recognition of the beauty, and once the beauty is accepted, the beauty never fails anyone she has kind of an interesting sense of beauty right when she says the beauty even when it is irritating and stimulating that is not the way most people think of beauty as like that is a very irritating beauty it's not the beauty of romanticism it's not the sublime Mm. something else i i think that it's the beauty of instigation You know, that it that it awakens, that it you recognize something in it and it can be irritating. It can be, you know, like a Socratic. Well, Socrates likens himself to a gadfly, as I oh, recall, yeah. which I think is a kind of horsefly, isn't it? So that's and I think that sense of instigation of awakening is a beginning. Is it kind mm-hmm. of like you confront it? And there's something about it that makes you this the as they say in the black forest, you know, the scales fall from your eyes and you have a moment of seeing. And then you you know, it's a, or it's a little bit like the beauty of the grain of sand, um, you know, to just drop into that metaphor, you know, that which the oyster 
takes into itself and it's this grain of sand and out of it, it, it begins to develop the knacker, N-A-C-R-E, you know, that right. forms, that becomes the pearl. But, but even when it's no longer irritating, uh, the art is beautiful. It's beautiful when it's irritating and it's beautiful after it's accepted and classic. So it's, it seems to be not just uh, what you're talking about, like it's not just something that awakens, but it's some kind of inherent... Uh, I mean, when I think of uh, cubism, and it makes me, you know, when I think in a kind of literal sense of cubism, people first saw cubist paintings and they thought, this is not art, this is just bizarre, this is just crap. And then now you look at a cubist painting and you sort of see it, the compositional strength of it. It's just beautifully composed. It has the, the greatness of different parts that play off each other in a in a you know a harmonious way i guess i mean that's how i see it that there's something in it the beauty is a little bit independent of whether it's irritating you or lulling you but uh-huh. at first you can't see it because it's so new you don't know what to look for that's how i see it it's like people didn't know what to like when i first listened to ornette coleman i just couldn't I had nowhere to stand from which to understand it. I couldn't literally understand it because I didn't know what part of it to look at first. And Sparrow, I think that's such an interesting observation. I think um, what I'm pretty certain that Gertrude Stein felt that was the case, not only for you listening to Ornate Coleman, but Uh also for Ornate Coleman himself. That she uses the words groping, preparing to oh, describe, yeah, very interesting, yeah. To describe the artist who who is prepared by preparing. And she describes mm-hmm. herself as groping toward the continuous present. That even the art form will remain unintelligible even to the artist who is engaged with the contemporaneous in um, an attentive manner. Yeah. They don't know where they stand. That's why but the composition is there and we are here even though we're creating the composition we don't have a grasp on it it's very very philosophical very complex yeah and then she goes on to say her breakthrough comes you know since we are kind of discussing black lives matter from this black life that she writes about in three lives in 1905 i wrote a negro story called melanctha so there's three stories, obviously, in Three Lives, but the one that she seems to be implying was her breakthrough when she was groping towards the continuous present is Melanctha. In that, there was a constant recurring and beginning. There was a marked direction in the direction of being in the present. Although naturally, I had been accustomed to past, present, and future. And why? Because the composition forming around me was a prolonged present. Hmm. So I think she's talking about, and this is where she talks about the 30 years, a composition of a prolonged present is a natural composition in the world as it has been these 30 years. It was more and more a prolonged present. But it's kind of interesting that by writing about this African-American woman, that was her breakthrough. You know, I don't know what to make of that. but It reminds me of something Sam Truitt once told me. Ha <laughs> ha! 
And that which was, is, you said that all original art forms in America emerge out of um, the African-American experience. Oh, right. And I've heard uh, Amiri Baraka yeah. say something similar. And I think um, you're spot on. And um, I, maybe there are issues with Gertrude Stein appropriating black identity. I don't know. That's uh, a topic perhaps for another conversation. But um, Sparrow, your observation about this eureka moment for her, this turn in the road, did remind me of Sam's comment, which um, has stayed with me. I know, Sam, um, th this comes after where we left off. Yeah. I just want to get your sense. I have my own sense, but I want to get your senses, plural, rather, of what she means exactly by time sense. Yeah. I mean, you know, we need to isolate, since we want to really look at time from, you know, we want to do something called Stein time. I think that there's this, we've heard the term prolonged presence, continuous presence, then time sense, and then, you know, she comes right out at a certain point and says it is understood by this time that everything is the same except composition and time. Now, when she says time here, that's different. Like, that time is different. Composition and the time of the composition and the time in the composition. And I'm, to be honest, I, I haven't, quite been able to classicize those you know i i can't quite get a grip on those differentiations and i and i think we should try i get the sense that and I, i'm not drawing from a stein text here i'm, I'm freely espousing yeah <laughs> but i get a sense the sense that by, by time sense she's referring to the relationship between grammar which she hmm does define as the logic of the composition of words. Once again, her definition of grammar in another text, I forget which, is uh -huh. the logic of the composition of the words within a composition. Okay, I feel that she's suggesting that there is a relationship between the deep grammar of how we speak or how we read or how we hear language that's spoken to us and our phenomenological experience of the temporal. Huh. How we actually experience time is going to be influenced by language. You know, Wittgenstein, right? The limits of my language are the limits of my world. That reality is undergirded by speech. That's yeah, it reminds me, uh, uh, Bernadette Mayer, she says you have to study the three Steins. <laughs> Einstein, Wittgenstein, and Gertrude Stein. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm picking up that, and it's also connected to beauty. Hmm. This, this term time sense also in this automatically with the acceptance of the time sense comes the recognition of the beauty. And once the beauty is accepted, as you read, Andrew, the beauty never fails anyone. And the acceptance of the time sense is that in the composite, that's the composition time. Well, I think in part, she's talking about historical time. I mean, we were saying this before, like she's, she's saying that, uh, you know, which is a kind of a commonplace thought that avant-garde artists are only appreciated after they're dead. And she said that that uh, process was speeded up by World War One. 
she said, I forget, I wrote it down somewhere. I love this that she said something like, oh yeah, war sped up the career of modern artists by 30 years. No, she said almost 30 years. So to her, it's a very precise uh, measure of history, you know. I mean, that was one of my theories about her, is that really she is a, a historian. She's talking about historical time, and she's saying after a certain amount of time, uh, you can see the beauty in something. But she mm -hmm. is, I agree, also talking about the time in the composition itself. But but that and there, that's not a contradiction in that the time yeah. sense that is in the composition is a portrait of the historical time sense that they're inextricably the same. It's a difference, a difference. Now scrap that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the the, uh, the artist has to think the way the time is perceived in their particular period of time, in their epoch. You know, she doesn't distinguish between great artists and bad artists, whereas I think most of us would say, well, it's great artists who really perceive the way time is perceived in their time, and other bad artists are still living 30 years in the past. But she doesn't quite say that, but maybe she is sort of suggesting that. If I were just reading romantic poetry, right, laden with nostalgia, the sense that there was some previous wholeness lost at some some great prelapsarian moment that yearns to recover, that's going to, um, if I read those sorts of texts and they permeate my consciousness, that is yeah. going to influence my experience of the temporal in a pretty mm -hmm. way. I'm going to think about that um, that sort of prelapsarian yearning for 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 a wholeness that was lost in my own life, and I, mm -hmm. I ignore the present. I, I may be um, absolutely dominated by nostalgia. Mm -hmm. And nostalgia <laughs> definitely bends time. Nostalgia is what's pissing me off about classic rock. You know. I mean, I think nostalgia is interesting. I'm not sure if the if the sort of pithy heart of romanticism is necessarily nostalgic. Mm. And I'm not certain in this essay that Stein is making a disparaging front against romanticism. I think that romanticism is super duper important because I think that for me, it more lines up with that sense of the human essence mm -hmm. of a native looking out on this world in a state of bafflement, wonder. Mm. The term, Andrew, that'll be familiar to you is that the most direct access to originality, to that prelapsarian state, is one of an acknowledging the uncanny. Hmm. Nice. Yeah, I like what you say. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strain.